Welcome to another episode of We Are Carbon. I'm Helen Fisher and I'm joined by Sheila Cook for a discussion about bringing a whole systems mindset to farming practices. Sheila and her husband Christopher are the founders of 3LM, which is the savoury network hub for the UK and Ireland. They're providing training based on the holistic management framework developed by Alan Savory, and if that concept is entirely new to you, I'll pop a link in the description to some content by Alan that will offer some background. Sheila's work involves assisting farmers in their transition to more regenerative practices. It's driven in many ways by the mindset shift that takes things away from prescriptive inputs, linear thinking and controlling things by treating isolated symptoms and moves them instead towards an understanding and appreciation of the farm as a part of nature that is a whole interconnected living system. We put a main focus on holistic grazing for pasture-raised animals, and since it really can be quite a leap to take things from one approach to the other, we discuss some comparisons between the mindsets, and Sheila offers many insights into the challenges and solutions that she's been through with farmers on their journeys to adopting change. Among the experience shared here, we touch upon what's unique to holistic grazing when it comes to the UK climate, the place of meat within land regeneration and human diet, and the role of the consumer as a driving force to push forward a regenerative transition. New episodes of this podcast are added every other Tuesday, You can find them on YouTube and your favourite podcasting platforms, so don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. Right, let's get stuck in. Hi Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. It's really uh, exciting to, to learn about your work. I'm excited to get stuck in. Perhaps you could start us off with a bit of an introduction to yourself and also a bit of background to 3LM. Thank you, Helen. It's such a pleasure to be here with you and talk about this really important subject of food. Um, and 3LM stands for Land and Livestock Management for Life. Um, we founded it um, to be a hub in the Savory Network, which is a global network, and the mission of that network is regenerating the world's grasslands. And our remit is working in the UK and Ireland, really helping farmers learn how to manage holistically and supporting them in that transition. Fantastic. Uh, We obviously speak a lot about regenerative food production on the show. And so the work of Alan Savory and the, the terms holistic management, it crops up from time to time naturally because it's just such an uh, impactful influence within this, this sort of area. But we haven't ever done a, an episode where we focused on it, where we've sort of said, what is holistic management and had an overview of that. And I think with you being part of the Savory Network, it would be fantastic if we could hear it in your words. What is holistic grazing in a nutshell. Right. So holistic planned grazing is a subset of a bigger thing. And so we need to start with the bigger thing. And the bigger thing is holistic management, which is, it's a framework for decision making. So imagine like you've got this framework with all these doors and windows. And it, ma- it means we can enter through any door or through any window and it opens up to the whole. So um, any problem, for example, that we have on a farm is a door, think of it as a doorway into the whole. 
And that helps you understand what's a framework. And so then what's holistic plan grazing? It's just a, a one of the planning procedures within holistic management. There are others. And it helps us to uh, utilize holistic thinking in a grazing operation. There isn't one prescribed method, uh, which is a common mistake people make. Instead, it's principles and uh, learning how to observe nature, learning how to observe what's the impact of the tools we're using on nature. Is it, is it, how is it affecting how nature functions? And basically, our aim is to have nature be in full flight as a result of our grazing. And so we can manage our grazing in any number of ways. But the key is we're going to be observing what's the impact of our grazing on nature and adapt to what's happening in nature because our farm or our ranch is nature and effectively we're managing nature. And so we want nature to be in full flight if we're trying to um, grow healthy plants that are in abundance and grow healthy animals that are in abundance. Yes, absolutely. So the, the approach to producing food is to acknowledge that these animals are part of nature. Any plant that's growing, that's part of nature. So the whole farming production is considered as an ecosystem. And could you maybe underline a few aspects where it would be a different approach to what we might see in conventional farming? So if we're going to be raising livestock, for example, how would we approach those two things differently? Yeah, it, it's easy to make the contrast. In conventional farming, um, what we're often thinking about is just the money. It's, it's, it's all about the money. And so what we're taught either at an agricultural college or by an agronomist or by a company that is um, producing inputs to use in agriculture, any of those would teach us, um, we're, the perspective we're looking at nature is though it is mechanistic, as though our farm is a factory, and that all we have to do is put on more inputs. What do I mean by inputs? Things like fertilizers or pesticides or herbicides, or that we have to use medicines in our animals. Um, the, all we have to do is get the right mix of all of that and do things at the right time. And then we're going to grow a lot of grass and we're going to grow a lot of animals and we're going to have really good profit. So that's how we would kind of look at things in the industrial mindset. In the holistic mindset, we're going to look at this farm and say, mm, actually, that's nature. And nature is very complex. And it's more complex than humans understand or appreciate today. And so within holistic management, 
we're working with the understanding that nature is one great big dynamic process going all the time. And we teach ourselves how to observe the signs of change so that we can know, oh, is nature uh, becoming more resilient or is nature being degraded? And we can observe those signs of change quickly. So then, and then we learn about all the different tools that we have for managing and we learn which tools are going to make nature degrade most likely and which tools are going to actually cause nature to regenerate. In other words, um, to be ever increasing in complexity, meaning it's getting more and more resilient and more and more abundant, more and more complex. And so in, in that way of thinking then, we're never trying to decrease nature. So an, an industrial farmer will wake up in the morning thinking about how can I kill that weed today? They're always thinking about how can I kill stuff? because they see that as robbing resources from the thing they're trying to grow. So that's the mindset. Instead, in a holistic mindset, we're thinking about how do I make more stuff, more of everything grow here? Because when there's more of everything growing here, then the particular product that I'm selling is going to benefit from that. So it's like almost like a night and day. It's completely opposite way of looking at uh, the world yeah that's it's it's so um I, i'm trying to think of this from all different points of view as you're talking because i have a reasonable understanding myself but it's so interesting to to hear it from all different points of view there is a complexity to trying to describe it that takes us um, it takes us out of what is comfortable, I think, in terms of trying to explain it to somebody um, that has never come across it before. And you say, well, it's, it's everything. It's, it's nature at work rather than prescribing. And you can think for the farmers that are used to having the checklist and having the prescription of go out, do this, if there's a weed, kill it. You can see that this is actually quite a difficult thing to go from one to the other. I think that transition, you actually have to step back off the farm almost and anticipate it as a mindset before you can then go back and think, I'm going to treat things differently. I, I think if we could break it down, it would be wonderful to have a think about that kill the weed approach. You, you kind of can see that is about controlling your area because we all know, even if we've just been a gardener rather than a farmer, that when something's growing where you don't want it to be, it can easily swamp out um, the, the, the plant that you want to sustain. Um, so you can understand where that has come from. If we, if we kill the weed, then we're clearing the space, we're allowing the other plants to thrive. How, how instead can that weed be of benefit? How is it, do we sort of take it back to photosynthesis and the, the soil life and, 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 or is it more to do with, well, if we're killing that weed with herbicides, that is the negative impact. Is it a bit of both? That's a great question. And I really appreciated your observation that um, 
coming out of the industrial agriculture mindset is the desire to control. Um, and that control, the desire to control, I believe, comes out of fear. Those are tightly linked. So, and you're also right in your observation that to go from that industrial mindset all the way to that holistic thinking, that's a massive leap. And actually that person's going to go through one, two, three worldviews on that journey at least, and possibly more depending on what their center of gravity is. And that's a tremendous leap. And so it, you're right. It's almost not even reasonable to expect a person to make that leap. It definitely isn't. It, so it's a journey. And so wherever that person is, they just need to take one step at a time. They don't need to get to that holistic thinking tomorrow. That's the journey of a lifetime. I'm on that journey. I'm not totally a holistic thinker either. Um, that, but I keep teaching myself how to try to do that. So then coming back to your specific question on that weed that I want to control, that's such a common issue. And so, and there's so many issues around it. So let's take the example of um, a dock or a thistle, which are common uh, weeds that arise in a pasture. And, or even rag, rag awards is another one. And um, the temptation people have and what they're taught to do is at least top them so that when they're done grazing a field and if they've got all these so-called weeds still there, they want to cut them down is what topping means so that the seed heads don't blow to the neighbor's field. So there's this social imperative that, oh, I don't want those weeds there because then my neighbor's going to be upset with me because oh, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that's the story. And that's why people cut them because they don't want that pressure. So the weed is there because every plant has a function. And those particular plants, the three that I named, are the sign of land in a downstretch instead of an upstretch. Um, the, the land is um, downstretching to less complexity because of the management, usually overgrazing, could be use of inputs, could be a whole bunch of things. Anyway, um, the land is downstretching. And usually what that means is there's some bare soil, there's some compacted soil, there's excess nutrients or some combination of a number of problems that nature can't cope with well. So these plants exist and come in as nature's repair plants. And so they are restoring the balance of nutrients in the soil. They're drawing minerals up from deep, like they're tap-rooted. The dock, for example, is tap-rooted, and so it can go deep, 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 and uh, remineralize um, the soil. So all these plants are serving a specific function. Nettles come in where animals have been gathered for whatever reason, and there's a lot of excess urine. Um, they, because they they love that excess uh, nitrogen in the soil, and they're processing that and restoring that to healthy balance. And so the holistic manager is going to recognize first, it, this plant is an indicator plant telling me something's not right in my management. So the first thing is to ask the question, What's the underlying root cause of the problem? 
So we identify what am I doing in my management that means these plants come in. Now, isn't that a much better way to go at it? Because now once I find that root cause of the problem, I just stop that. Now I don't need to top. I don't need herbicides. I don't have my neighbors yelling at me. Um, you know, it remedies all the problems. And then I'm never worried about it ever again. If I top those plants and keep my management going the way it is, I have a forever problem. If I get the underlying root cause of the problem, I have the end of a problem. The permanent end of a problem. And also I will change how I look at the plant. So I will probably see the plant on my farm for a long time, but I'll have peace with it because I will know, A, it's doing something functional. It's repairing my soils. So that's a good thing. I want the plant there. It's doing a job for me. And so it doesn't matter if the seed heads blow to my neighbors because those seeds are already in the soil. And the reason they arise on my farmer's land, a neighbor's farm is because of their management. The seed, the soil itself holds uncountable number of seeds. The seeds that are arising arise and germinate because of the life conditions that are created for them. That's so beautiful. <laughs> so it's the, it's the management of the neighbor that's the problem, not your seed heads blowing across. That is not the problem. That's a really, really wonderful explanation. There's so much within that that offers what I think um, you, you sort of started at this problem of control coming from fear. And within just that, that sort of section there, you've offered us an understanding and knowledge that replaces the fear, that is in part kind of that is the new control is knowledge, is taking a wider view and appreciating each of those weeds as we call them as they're sort of messengers and they're workers on the land and they're playing this role and I I'm, I enjoy that that phrase you use the indicator plants as though they were indeed um, something that is helping us to read the land um, because the, the plants you've mentioned the ragwort the thistles the dock they are such um, icons of our landscape today. It's very uncommon that you go anywhere and you don't see them in the UK. Um, and this, that, that, that is, that's lovely to know that they're, they're there for a reason and we, we aren't just looking there for a, a plant in the wrong place, but we can see that, well, this plant is indeed here because it's, it's, it's offering a service. It's offering a service to the land and it can um, t teach us in that way. So that's great. And I love also this, um, th this sense of, well, there's seeds everywhere because there is, there must be. When, when we look around at just how many, you know, there's thousands and thousands of seeds are produced from one plant in some cases. So, so it's not that we have mismanaged forcefully chopping them and stopping them from spreading. It's that they're germinating due to the conditions that they thrive in, the conditions that are suitable for them. And, and that gives us controlling a completely new way. We're not trying to manage each individual seed and control where it lands. We're trying to instead take um, a management, perhaps instead of the word control, we could use management. We're looking instead to manage the environment 
to manage the conditions that would be um, suitable um, for, for what for what that land needs. So it's it's a yeah fabulous uh, fabulous way to start the conversation. I think. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, and may I comment on what you just said? Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's so emergent in humans that we don't even have the words. What comes after this need for control? I, I know I have a need for control in my own life. That's just where we are as humans in our development. But let's take someone like Gabe Brown, who's a pretty well-known holistic managing farmer in North Dakota. And when I listen to him or read his work, he's not thinking about control because you can't control nature. It's just not possible. And like, he's like totally shifted like 180 degrees. So control isn't the thing. Instead, what he's thinking about is how do I regenerate this land? And that's a very different thing. And he's totally open to what that could be. So he's already been regenerating his landscape for more than 20 years. It's even longer. I'm sure it's more like 30 years probably. And what he says is for right now, he can't see any limit to the regeneration because every single year, the ecosystem processes are getting better on the land that he's managing. So he can't imagine that nature has limits because he hasn't seen them yet. And so I think it shifts like from control to like just awe and wonder and curiosity and openness and inspiration and just a complete letting go of fear. Like there's no fear in there. It's more just like, like your jaw dropped open, I just can't believe what nature can actually really do. It's so powerful. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that <laughs> I, I can really feel that sense of awe um, in, in what you're saying. Um, my own experience just on a small scale gardening, it's, 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 you take back that control and then it becomes wonder, doesn't it? It becomes um, a sense of what can nature teach me today? What is new that I can witness and learn? And I think it's fascinating that, that someone like Gabe Brown can have been through this process for, for decades and can still feel that way, can still feel like there's no limit. Do you have a sense of markers that, that are indicating that the, the land and the ecosystem is regenerating. How, yes. how can we say it's still going in that direction? We definitely do. And th that comes from Alan Savory and his work. And interestingly, he was a biologist and a, he loved wildlife. He lived in Africa and Zimbabwe. And one of the, because he was a hunter, um, he um, developed the skill of tracking animals. And then later in life, when there was a civil war in his country, unfortunately, he had to use the same skill for tracking people. And this is a very polished and refined skill that he has. So as a tracker, just imagine time is of the essence. You don't, you can't carry tools with you in the field because you're tracking something. Um, so you have to be lightweight and fleet of foot. And you have to just quickly 
gather as much data as you can and, and use your logic to make the best assumption about which way did they go. <laughs> right. And so he used all these powers. He fine, he fine tuned all these powers of observation and deduction and logic and speed without tools and technology. And he transferred that to soil and farming. And what we know where the earliest signs of change are at the soil surface at the, at the air soil interface right there. And we look at for the signs of water cycle, mineral cycle, energy flow, and community dynamics. And there are many indicators, but I'll just give you one because there's one indicator that indicates all four of those, and that's the amount of bare soil that you have. And um, in the UK, we live in what's called a non-brittle habitat, means there's good moisture year round, and we need moisture for growing life. So it means life is easy to grow in the UK and also life is easy to decompose. And that's, it's that full cycle that needs to happen for nature to really flourish. So you, in the UK, we have the potential because it's so non-brittle that, um, plant, a plant is right next to each other and there's absolutely no bare soil between. That's when we see that, we know oh, this is in a really positive state of regeneration. In our pastures, however, because of how things are managed, it's very common for there to be spacing or gaps between plants. And that would be a sign of the ecosystem processes are not in full flight. They're being suppressed and depressed. And the consequences of that are going to be big. Uh, when you have bare soil, um, you're going to get capping, which means water and air won't enter the soil well, which means that that land will be prone to flood and drought quicker. It won't be resilient. The, those plants won't be as nutrient dense. Uh, the, the water won't be as clean. Um, that all the water catchment coming off that land, um, whoever gets that water downstream, it's that land, that water won't be as clean because there's going to be a lot of runoff instead of infiltrating into the soil and slowly filtering out to the water systems. So just that bare amount of bare soil is one indicator. And for any listener out there, I would just challenge you to now go out into your back garden or your farm and literally look down and part the grasses and the plants is is there gap between plants? If yes, that means there's potential for more. Yes, that's that's a it's it's a very easy thing for people to do. That's given us something that we can uh, yeah go and go and check on. And uh, I think you're right. There's there's absolutely so much potential um just sort of off the top of my head when you think about you know walking around and seeing there's 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 certainly bare soil um on view um so 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 it's the interface between the plants the roots that sort of oxygenating and air, uh, adding moisture to that soil at that surface level that, that it all starts from and if yes. there's if there's bare soil that is a sign that um things think things could certainly be improved that's right Fantastic. it's a key in, it's a really key indicator of soil health 
When it comes to um, the work that Alan's done to develop holistic management, as you've mentioned, that was um, we have this difference between the brittle environments that he developed it within um, within Africa and our UK environments where we are in fact very fortunate in, in the way that, as you've described, the non-brittle cycles so much water, it's, it's very conducive to growing and decomposing life and, and allowing those ecosystems to thrive. But since your work with the Savory Network is here in the UK, I think it would be really interesting to put a focus on how farmers are integrating holistic management into their work here on UK soils? Are there particular approaches that are unique to the climate? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think that there's really anything terribly unique here. Um, the What would be one difference is that this is a high production climate. So it means you can grow a lot of plants per one square centimeter here. Um, and so the one implication of that is farms tend to be smaller in size and you have fewer animals. Um, and the consequence of that is that it's hard to get enough animal impact on the soil. That's one, that is one key difference. And um, in the more brittle landscapes, na nature would have had herds of animals transmigrating across the land. As much as possible, we're trying to mimic nature. And they would have had, nature would have had so many animals there that um, it's, they're uncountable. They're, they're in the millions. But they're passing through, they're migrating through. And this is what built the deep soils of, of earth um, and the, the grasslands of the world, which are now by and large arable. That's where the arable lands are, is where we once had those vast grasslands. So that's a challenge that farmers have here, is how to get it high enough stock density. Um, and then also the, the regulations, the policies often prevent people from having enough stock density. Now, it's um, not to say that you can't achieve, um, you know, good things. You can, but it just means you have to use your human creativity to work out how to get good stock density here. That would be a key difference. That I would say the other key difference that I can think about really, and this is very unique to our climate. I don't know a lot of other climates like what we have here. So what we have is we're extremely far north. And so you have very little sunlight in the winter and a lot of sunlight in the summer. Two, we're very temperate because of the Gulf Stream and being completely surrounded by water. Um, so you don't get a hard freeze. And then this makes things challenging from arable perspective because it means you don't get a hard frost. It means that plants don't die. Um, and, and, and so what are you going to do if you're arable? Are you going to use a chemical like glyphosate to kill those animals to, or plants to terminate the plants? 
Are you going to do plowing? How are you going to terminate last year's crop so you can plant the coming year's crop? That's the big challenge. And I know people are making progress on that, but that's, I would say that is a unique thing that makes it challenging, but that's okay. And the, the reason why holistic management has come so late to this part of the world is because nature is so forgiving here. It is the most gentle climate for growing plants um, because we don't get these big swings in temperature and you've got even moisture throughout the year. And so you almost have things growing year round here in many cases. And, and that's the challenge, but, but it's why people, it's one of the barriers actually to the adoption of holistic management, because as you've seen so far, it's such a big shift in your thinking. And so if you don't have a strong underlying reason to make the change, people don't, or they don't make enough change. They make very tiny change. And that's what happens typically in Europe is people make very tiny change. Um, whereas if they were in a brittle landscape, they've got huge reasons why they must change or they're going to lose their farm. We don't have that here. That's really interesting. That is, uh, yeah, I, I know how oh, it's just a beautiful country for growing and, and how wonderful and forgiving it is. I never thought of it from that point of view, that that's actually the downside of uh, adopting change. Because like you say, it's... I mean, where, where people are experiencing desertification and there's just nothing will grow, they've got to look for a solution. So over here, the the farmers are finding that things are not, not as bad. They're not, not being let down by changes in the climate um, at this point. How about um, the dependencies that they have on all these different inputs and the price fluctuations. Do you think that that is becoming more of a motivation? Temporary. Yeah, yeah, you know, as the prices come back, then people forget about it quickly. So that, unless that would were a permanent change, I don't think so. And even still, then let's say it's a permanent change, then everything adjusts to the new prices. So then it's all okay. I think it, it really requires, in most cases, some kind of real disaster for people to make changes. Unfortunately, that's yeah. the way it, it typically works for us, for all of us. Yeah, so I suppose that's, that's human nature and we, we can't change that. I, I, I think what would be interesting if you have a have in mind a few farmers that you've worked with, a few examples of the farms where you teach from. Are there any um, stories there of how they've adopted change, maybe even why they've adopted change? Yeah, I, um, it's, I love actually going to farms that we've taught and then having them give me a tour in our class a tour um, because then I see what they've taken on board. And it's so much fun to watch and to watch them grow and change over the years. And I'll just give you one example. And this was a farmer in uh, London. He farms a, a, a farm straddles the M25. And he, um, in our class, really struggled with um, glyphosate. He said, oh, it's such a good tool. We can't do without glyphosate. Uh, it, it's, it's really essential. And then um, a couple of years later, 
uh, we had a farm tour with one of our classes and he was giving the tour and he said, Oh, and you know what? Um, this is my last year of using glyphosate. And I, I've been observing now the, the impact of it on our land. And I've reached my own conclusion now that I don't need it anymore. So this will be my last year of using it. How exciting. That's fabulous, it, isn't it? So I find it's when the person comes to the conclusion themselves, which is what holistic management helps people do. It doesn't tell you anything. It only gives you questions and principles. Um, when they come to their own conclusion, that's the most powerful form of change. Yeah. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Absolutely. And from that point of view on the glyphosate, what differences could a farmer expect from before use and after? Well, um, glyphosate uh, is a toxin <laughs> and it's um, creating all kinds of problems in the soil. So it's killing lots of stuff. And it will be killing as well, it's killing lots of living organisms in the soil. And that's going to be creating a problem for their mineral cycle, the cycling of nutrients through plants and uh, animals and back through soils. And then it's going to be impacting the gut of all the ruminant animals. Um, and then it'll be impacting our gut as well. And it's one of the reasons that we see so much intolerance to gluten because all these grains um, that uh, have gluten, by and large, uh, have glyphosate used multiple times during the growing season. And especially the most ironic one is at the very end is they put on a dose of glyphosate to cause the plant to um, express the seed fully. Um, and the consequence of this is ill health for the soil, the plant, the animal, and humans. And the, the trouble is that um, if you look at the research of Dr. Zach Bush, there's a really good YouTube he does on this. It, they've discovered through transgenerational research that the first generation of humans or animals experiencing the glyphosate don't directly receive a big impact. But, and, and, and that first female, she, she gets the glyphosate, um, her, and her child gets none. That, that child is going to have multiple health issues from their mother having had that glyphosate. The child of that one not getting glyphosate at all is going to have even more health consequences. And then that next one, even more. And what Dr. Zach Bush says, and this is why farmers think glyphosate isn't a problem because it's not impacting their bodies directly. But who's it impacting? Their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. And it happens because of transcription of genes. So as our genes are transcribed, errors get made because glyphosate has caused damage. And so, and this is exactly what we're seeing in human health today, where young people in particular are extremely unhealthy, but that's because we've had now 
you know, two and three generations of people consuming large amounts of glyphosate. And one of the big indicators is obesity. And where do we have obesity? We have obesity in countries that have a huge amount of glyphosate. Um, cancer is another one. One in two people in America will get cancer now. Um, so the signs are there, but you have to see the whole big picture to make the connection back to the glyphosate. If you're just looking at yourself and your farm, uh, you're going to think glyphosate's quite a magic tool and we should keep on using it because it does all the good stuff that you want to, you want to control. Mm. <laughs> That's, that is so interesting. It's, it's a tragic, tragic, um, area of, of study really when we think of the impact and how widespread its use is and I think it comes back to the motivation being lacking here because of well there's not enough of a disaster on the land to look to make change it's kind of like that disaster is there it's just much more silent much more long drawn out and that people have in many ways when it comes to declining health we kind of create a new normal for ourselves and we're not necessarily aware that ah I should I should feel better than this so it's almost like the motivation needs to come from fleeting awareness of I can I you know wow look how well I feel when I exclude this from my diet or I exclude this from my land and like you say people can really motivate from a place of self-learning and self-integrating that understanding and then all of a sudden they're not going to want to look back so there's there's definitely something in that in in terms of a, a new angle to motivate from but it's just a bigger picture as you know all of this is um, I think what would be really interesting from the perspective of farmers, we have all of these terms these days, and I'm probably guilty of this also, we try to find words and phrases to differentiate the way that land is managed. So we, this is a sustainable practice, this is regenerative farming. But these are phrases that we're, we're sort of using to say whether the land is being trapped with love, if you like, and being revitalised, or whether it's declining. But from the farmer's point of view, this is their livelihood. This is everything that they know. And I think those 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 terms probably rub them up in, in different ways, depending on where they associate them. Have you got any insights on that farmer's point of view to all of this transitional talk? Are, are they eager to, to adopt regeneration on their land or is it um, something that they feel a bit opposed to almost? Um, I think that farmers, like most people, are cautious about change. And I would like for any listener that is not a farmer in particular, because it, it's non-farmers who have this question. Farmers get it. Um, any non-farmer, put yourself in the shoes of a farmer and imagine you've got land that's been in your family for hundreds or thou a thousand years, which that happens in the UK. And it's now on your shoulders. And you're being asked to consider changing what your family's been doing since the last hundreds of years. Are, how quick are you gonna make that change? Because what if you lose the family farm? What if it's on your shoulders that you lost the family farm? That's a big, that's a burden that you don't want to bear. 
So you're going to naturally be cautious. So I think we all need understanding of farmers that they're going to be cautious in making change. Um, and I think that's the right approach. I would be the same if I were in their shoes. So now, what does that mean from the farmer's perspective? I would encourage any farmer listening to this, hey, farmers, you for a long time know how to experiment on your farm. It's called doing a pilot. Do a pilot. You know, try it out. And um, don't just say, no, we're not doing it at all. Do a safe-to-fail pilot where if it fails, it, it you know, it's not going to affect you. Um, and then dabble and learn. And, and then as you get confidence, then you can do more and more and more. And that's the way that you can. You need to prove it to yourself. So I agree. Do it that way. Yeah. So that would be essentially just allowing a little bit of land that you have yes. the resources to allow and, and see what you can learn from that, see how it takes. That's great. Yes. And and when I look around at the farmers who do that approach, um, they are very successful. Yeah, wonderful. So do you find that they tend to do that experiment and then they will increase the amount of land that they're, they're working in that way and they sort yes. of transitions on a scale basis? Yes, because they prove to themselves, hey, what I did this year really worked. I want more of that. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Because sort of, it's uh, proving itself, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah, demonstrating. Yeah. 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 Well, that's that's very much a testament to 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 the the success of it. If if the farmer is choosing to to expand. I think just changing the the sort of point of view here for for the next few questions, uh, it would be really interesting to get your perspective on this idea of whether it is good for the planet and good for the body and the health to include meat in our diets. It's a topic that's quite difficult, it's quite quite big and complex, but for the the type of person out there, the consumer who is wanting to make healthy choices for people and for planet. What is the role of meat and uh, how, how would you explain to them that it, it could be a good choice? Yeah. So I used to be a vegan for oh, like 13 years because I thought that was a healthy choice for the planet. Um, I started down the track because I thought it was a healthy choice for my body. And then I thought it was a healthy choice for the planet. And then what I did was... Uh, my husband had me watch Alan Savory's uh, TED Talk on YouTube regarding desertification. And in 20 minutes, I learned I had made a big mistake. And a year later, I started eating meat again. And um, as much as possible, I try to eat meat that is grown in a way that's regenerating soil. So um, so why why should we eat meat? First off, um, meat um, ha has so many benefits, health benefits for us. And the reason is because ruminant animals are eating many complex, um, a complex diet of plants. You know, a, a typical cow, when she's allowed to eat in a biodiverse pasture, she'll be eating 25 to 50 different plants in a given day, selecting the diet that her body needs on that day and then those plants are producing thousands of phytonutrients. And so it's not just the vitamins, the minerals that we need to be thinking about. It's the 
literally thousands of phytonutrients, which are these very complex chemicals produced by plants to do a big variety of things. And our bodies need the phytonutrients to do things like make our immune system incredibly resilient to things like cancer and, and many other functions. We, and so meat is one of the best sources of these phytonutrients. So th th there's all kinds of health benefits from eating meat. But then to your question about the planet, you know, um, I agree that um, animals that are raised in a feedlot are contributing to ecological disaster in a variety of ways, not, not just by releasing carbon or methane into the atmosphere, but there's many other problems going on there ecologically. And we should avoid that kind of meat as much as possible. And so it's making a differentiation. It, you know, we just, we allow the media to dumb down the conversation and tell us that all meat is bad. That is just, I'm sorry, that is plain idiocy. That, that's the only word for it is idiocy. If that were true, and you know, that would mean thousands of years ago when there were many more ruminant animals than there are today, we would have been facing ecological disaster back then. So you gotta ask the question, okay, 4,000 years ago when we had more ruminant animals, how come we didn't have climate change and how come we have it today? Could it be related to how we are raising ruminant animals? Could it be that we broke all the cycles that nature had in place between ruminant animals and predators and vast tracts of grassland. I would think that there's something that we broke and that's the problem, not the animal. The animal is not the problem. It's, it's the fact that we broke everything that nature had in place. That's the problem. Yeah, and it is such a big contrast. And just to sort of um, clarify on that, when it comes to those wonderful phytonutrients that you were saying that we get through the complexity of the diet, is it right to assume that we don't get that in the feedlot animal in the same way that we do of the uh, holistically managed animal? Yes, and there's already research showing that. And moreover, we get bad stuff out of the feedlot animal not just that we're missing the good stuff, we're also getting bad stuff. Mm. So it's an enormous contrast. And yes. it's a complex topic. Like you say, the media dumb it down to what is a simple sort of one-liner. This is bad, this is good. And it, it really can't be that simple. So really to expand on that topic, how would you advise somebody if they're looking to buy good meat or even good food? any kind of food, what, what should they be looking for? It's a really good question. And what it means is you need to become a conscious consumer and you need to start investigating where is your food coming from. And so I'll just give you a simple example. Um, when we moved to the Lake District, when I um, first got here, um, I wanted to check out the butcher and um, find out where the meat came from. And I asked him, 
oh, is all the meat in here grass fed? And he just looked at me like I was speaking Chinese. He had no idea what my question was. And I know my American accent, you know, is a problem, but it was like he understood not a single word that I said because he'd never, ever had that question. And, um, finally my husband actually had to explain what my question was. And he, then he actually didn't know the answer. He did not know if all the meat in his shop was a hundred percent grass fed. It had never occurred to him to ask that question. So the starting place is whoever you buy from now, start asking those questions, whether it's a grocery store or a butcher or whatever, because those people need to know that consumers are starting to care. And then, and so that starts to influence change. And I think the, the place for change is with the consumer, not with the farmer, because the farmer is a business person. That's what they are. And they're going to do what the market tells them to do. And so if the market tells them everybody wants grass fed meat grown on regenerating soils, guess what? Every farmer is going to learn how to do that within a matter of a decade. You could make that transition in a decade very, very quickly. So the consumer is the place to uh, make change happen on the large scale. But it means that consumers have to start caring and they have to start investigating and um, learning about their food. Yes. So those kind of questions, is it grass fed? Is it regeneratively raised? Are they enough? Is that um, differentiating the difference if the animal has been raised entirely yeah. on grass? Yeah, it's it's enough to move the needle in the right direction. Um, it, it, it's a really good starting place. And, you know, a lot of farmers bash veganism They're, because vegans are bashing livestock farmers. There's kind of a war going on between them. Having been a vegan, I want to defend veganism. Okay. And how I see a vegan is a person who's waking up. That's what a vegan is. So it's a person who maybe for the very first time is starting to realize that what they eat, their food choices actually matter. And um, that's how I experienced it. It meant for the very first time, I gave a lot of thought to what I was eating. And I really hadn't thought about it before, I have to say. And I started reading tons of books on it. And I, I changed my diet many, many, many times over the course of the years. As I, as I keep learning more, I keep actually changing my diet. Um, and I think we will go on this way for a long time until we stabilize into a place where, boy, anything you buy is going to be healthy for you. Yes. Yeah, that's a, it's a wonderful place to imagine getting to. And I think you're absolutely right. I would so agree that the idea of becoming awake to, ah, what I eat is impacting the world. What I eat is impacting my body. It's impacting my well-being. That's a, that's a, a place that originally, initially might lead you to the conclusion to take away certain aspects of your diet. To, to strip things back and then it becomes a learning journey and that that is it's a 
phenomenal journey because like you've just said it it sort of doesn't have an end it seems like we're continually learning and we're doing it all together which yes. is fantastic and of course much of that vegan diet it's not going to be native to the UK so if we're here in the UK and you're taking those choices maybe that means there's a lot of imports and there's a lot of processing and there's a lot of fossil fuels even still in 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 that in that choice which is why then you you kind of zooming back out again and you're learning a bit more and you're taking a wider view and i think the ultimate question to me which i don't expect you to have a clear answer on i think it's something that we're continuing to explore but can we with the land we have in the UK and the population that we have here, do we have the space to, to produce our food regeneratively across the board? Yes, no question. Absolutely no question. Yeah, oh, that, that was much clearer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really uh, happy for your uh, certainty on that. That's great. Yeah, so how do I know that? Um, the reason I know that is because almost all grassland is underperforming its potential. Yes. So it's about the density that can come off that same land. Mm -hmm. If you were managing all of our grasslands holistically, um, first off, you would not need all the chemicals. And so that would improve the health of the soil, the plants, the animals, and humans straight away. But then secondly, you would grow two, three, even four times as much grass as is grown today. And so what you can do with that is kind of up to you. You can reduce the amount of grain that animals are eating, which would be really good because ruminants don't naturally eat grain in large quantity. They naturally eat it as a seed head in a field. So it's going to be a tiny bit of their diet, but they don't eat it in mouthfuls. And this causes their rumen a lot of problems, and it's why grain-fed animals have to take a lot of antibiotics because the food they're eating is actually making them sick. So we'd, we would grow a lot less grain um, for animals then, and then that land could be freed up, and what would you grow on it? Well, that would be wonderful market gardens for growing fantastic vegetables for people, or rewild it you maybe don't even need it you know um, but definitely we can there's no question that we can be a hundred percent growing all the food that we need and exporting food the surplus for sure I, I love your confidence on that that's fantastic <laughs> really really optimistic and I think one last thing then we have um, we've talked about the complexity of the system of grazing and managing the land the mindset change we've kind of talked about how challenging that is for the farmer and there's different roadblocks and barriers and there's the transition but for the consumer you've said their role is huge their role is motivating on this other avenue the farmer to to make those changes so it's so important to educate the consumer i wonder if you've got any thoughts on what kind of radical change on consumer education might look like? Are there different avenues we might need to take for that? One thing is I think we need to educate school children because when we educate school children, then they'll grow up as a, a wise consumer. So that would be ideal is just educate all the children. Then in the interim, then what do you do with all the families, you know, who are busy 
I was a, I'm now 61, but I remember being a working mom and having a family and needing to feed them and just trying to figure out how was I going to get um, nutritious food without buying ultra processed food, buying whole foods and cooking it and working a really hard job, you know, working probably I was working about 50 hours a week on average um, and take care of my son and my husband and all that. I know that is really hard, but I did try to do it. And I, I think I, I, I know I made mistakes, but I did try and um, boy, did I learn a lot from it. I think, I think people need to try and they, they need to, you do not, as a working mom, have to use ultra processed food. Okay, so this is the thing I learned that I need to add. As a as a mom, and a, a, the I would decide what we ate, and I would cook it. I learned lots of tricks, and these tricks I think are not known. And somebody needs to do a podcast on this. I keep challenging people; they need to do this. But I do things like make double the food we need this meal because it's going to become lunches or next week's meal, put it in the freezer, blah, blah. And there's lots of tricks you can do. Like while you're preparing this lettuce for today, also prepare it for tomorrow and then just stick it in the fridge in uh, special containers so that it stays fresh and when you need, and, and it's just all this stuff saves time and plan. Like, um, you know, your schedule for the week. So, you know, oh, on Friday, I've got a super busy day. So I'm going to use the chili I made last week in the freezer and serve that on Friday. Um, whereas on Saturday, I've got lots of free time. So I know somebody that what she did Saturdays was the time that she and her two kids made breakfast for the entire week and they'd make pancakes and, and sausages and bacon and um, they would prepare it and they'd stick it in containers and that was in the freezer and all of them could have good breakfast for the whole coming week. There's oodles of tricks like that, but, um, it, and it's hard to learn them. And someone needs to do a podcast and teach young people how to cook so that they can have a career and eat good food at the same time. Then the other part of it is, I think we need to shift our values. Do we really need two working people in a family? Could it be that one person stays home? And could we as a society value how important that is? Yeah. Yeah, the role of nurturing the home and the people. Yeah. It's uh, fantastic advice all throughout that. And I think what sort of summarizes it all is the idea of consciously planning and taking awareness that um, you don't have to be panicked in the moment it's you know give yourself some breathing room and pre-think what's coming up it could go a whole whole load a really long way um, I think that's fantastic and I, I think it's really um, hit, hits it on the nose to, to teach the young children because that's an opportunity that's already there in the sense that they're they're sort of learning these new concepts every day and why not why not learn something that's going to put them really on track to to encompass these ideas throughout their life so yeah 
fantastic advice. Thank you so much. It has been a really, really insightful and a huge pleasure to be able to have this chance to speak with you. Are there any other highlights that you'd like to leave us with, maybe things that you're focused on in your work at the moment or references for further learning? Yeah, I'm going to give you a quote from Dr. Christine Jones. She said, we need to consume twice as much meat, three times as much fruit, and four to five times as many vegetables to obtain the same amount of minerals and trace elements as available in those same foods in 1940. So the human um, immune system is breaking down because of what we're eating. And so that's, every human needs to know that and needs to care about it. And I think every human needs ecological literacy. And, and we, we need to learn it in schools because we're not learning it in schools. Then as adults, we all need ecological literacy. If you're interested in that, then I recommend reading the book, Holistic Management by Alan Savory. Um, you can also take classes and hubs around the world are teaching classes. If you want to find out about classes in the UK, just go to 3lm.network or you can write to us at info at 3lm.network. And I'm really happy to speak with you and help um, answer any questions that people have. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you, Helen. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for listening to this episode of We Are Carbon. New episodes are added every other Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date. It's a huge help to the show if you'd like to add a thumbs up or a review on whichever platform you're listening on. And let's keep figuring this all out together. Together.